9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, uh, and I am pleased to be joined today both by our regular Ed Luce of the Financial Times. Hi, Ed. Hi, David. Good to be here. And uh, by special guest today, Congressman Ro Khanna, who is a congressman from the 17th District in California, member of the Armed Services Committee, the Budget Committee, the Committee on Oversight Reform, uh, and uh, holds a special place in my heart as a former uh, uh, member of the Commerce Department. I, you know, very, very few people go on from the Commerce Department to any sort of distinction. Uh, in fact, I think it's just you, Congressman, and Herbert Hoover. Um, <laughs> Well, Herbert Hoover, uh, for all his other flaws, was a great commerce secretary. So it just it was downhill from there. Yeah, well, it is. It's, that was the case with me as well. In any event, thank you very, very much for joining us. And um, I just thought maybe Ed and I will ask you a couple of questions, and then we'll have a, a bit of a roundtable discussion. Um, uh, and it's possible Corey Shockey will join us as we go here. But uh, why don't we kick off with, with a question from Ed? Uh, great to see you, Representative Kana. Um You're uh, a prominent progressive um, representative in Congress um, with the Bernie Sanders campaign. And now we've seen, you know, in the last few months, a surprisingly, a pleasantly good integration between the Sanders wing of the party and the Biden um, campaign. But in the last few days, there's been some murmurings um, from people around um, Senator Sanders that Biden is not focusing enough on the sort of basic economics of what concerns most Americans, and that there is clearly still there a, a difference of emphasis, if not of ideology, between the center of the Democratic Party and the left. Is that true? Is this a problem? Uh, and if it is a problem, is Biden addressing it? Well, first of all, I think Biden, uh, the vice president, is a very strong position to win, but there is a uh, paranoia among all Democrats, not just the progressive wing, uh, about the consequences of coming up short, uh, partly shaped by the 2016 experience uh, and partly given the consequences of having Donald Trump for uh, another four years. So even if you think it's a 25 or 30 percent probability, that's still a very high probability. Uh, I think there is a, a philosophical difference uh, in the sense that uh, the progressive wing believes a, a return to normalcy uh, is not sufficient, that a lot of people in 2016 voted uh, for change because of uh, deindustrialization, because of uh, the working class being left behind, and they got someone who sold them false promises in that the best way uh, to win back uh, those areas uh, is to offer a real economic vision that says we're not going to return to how things were. Uh, but we're going to have a progressive economic vision uh, to really address and prioritize working class uh, issues. And I think that's what Bernie Sanders was talking about to really offer that. There are aspects of that in the vice president's uh, 
policies. He's very strong on labor, on unions. And I think the, uh, Bernie Sanders was saying, lead with that and let's uh, really offer that vision. Um, just as a follow-up, I mean, that, say for the sake of argument, Biden does win. And I, I think I share your prognosis on that. He probably will win. Um, we're going to get pretty quickly into priorities and politics is about choices. Um, if, if indeed you know, the Biden team is more of a restoration team, that going back to pre-Trump is basically what needs to happen. How, how big a problem would that be for you? Well, it depends where we started. I mean, my hope would be they'd start with a $15 minimum wage. They would start with improving uh, the right to unionize. They'd start with proper classification of employees. Uh, but if it uh, was just about uh, decency and civility and, and, and kindness, I mean, obviously, I'd vote for that over what we have now. Uh, but I think that would uh, disappoint a lot of people uh, in two or four years. And so I, I don't think that's what uh, the approach will be. I, I think the, the vice president uh, has already adopted a lot of uh, strong economic proposals. Uh, and I, I really think that the, the Sanders and some of the progressives were saying, you have a lot of good things, uh, lead with that, emphasize that. Another dimension of this divide, um, uh, uh, which might, might be described as sort of focusing on restoration versus focusing on transformational change, has to do with correcting some of the errors of the Trump years. Um, and I just, I, I want to raise a couple of them, but I, but I want to start with this. Looks like the president is, is, is absolutely committed to cheating in this election. And you've been quite outspoken in your um, condemnations of the postmaster general. Uh, you're involved in, in the process of oversight. But it seems like so far the president's able to get away with whatever he wants. Do you think that a new administration should spend time and energy focusing on ensuring that people are held accountable? Yes. I mean, uh, for, first of all, I think we have to all be vigilant uh, uh, about um, minimizing the possibilities for the president to, to cheat. And it's not just the president, it's uh, uh, the uh, allies he has. I mean, the Wisconsin Supreme Court, as we speak, is... Uh, doing their best to possibly delay absentee ballots going out and sabotaging that process. Uh, so uh, the only way we can uh, deal with this is for vigilant, heightened citizenship. And so that I don't think the exercise in Congress of oversight of DeJoy was uh, an exercise of futility. We, we aren't able to remove him and we haven't had concrete concessions, but it has heightened everyone uh, in the country's awareness of what's going on with the post office and people can be more vigilant about making sure uh, their ballots get there on time and uh, be more uh, vigilant about what's happening in post offices. So it's really going to take concerted citizen uh, activism to, to overcome the cheating uh, that this president may engage in. Uh, but I do think there ought to be uh, a consequence for, for individuals. I, I don't think that ought to be an obsession. I think we ought to be offering a, uh, a positive vision. Uh, but you can't... Uh, uh, turned a blind eye to crimes that were committed or, or wrongdoing. So I think we've been joined by fellow Californian Corey Shockey, who runs the Foreign Policy and National Security Programs at the American Enterprise Institute. Am I right about that, Corey? Are you there you with us? You are indeed exactly right, David. I am here. 
Good. Um, well, we've been just going with a round here of questions for Congressman Kana. Um, do you perhaps have one that you'd like to uh, to to offer up? I do indeed. I because Congressman Kana had been so active in the Sanders campaign. I'd love to draw him out on his vision for American defense policy um, because. I think that's an area where the Democratic left has credibility problems um, with more mainstream potential voters, but I'd love for you to persuade me that I'm wrong. Well, I think that the uh, left's uh, policy actually uh, resonates uh, with most Americans. Most Americans understand that uh, we have been in endless wars that have uh, cost $6 trillion, and they much rather uh, that that money had been spent on our education and infrastructure here at home. In fact, when you look at polling that says, do you believe that we ought to be on the offense against terrorism uh, to make sure that we defeat terrorists on the battlefields overseas? Or do you believe that we ought to be prioritizing spending on high-speed internet, uh, good-paying jobs in our community and healthcare in our community? Uh, overwhelmingly, the polling says the latter. Now, we spend more uh, than the next eight uh, countries combined, uh, and uh, it, Trump has increased their military budget from $600 billion to $740 billion. That's where Obama left it. Uh, and I think most people would say, instead of having the bloated military increases, uh, that we ought to be investing that in our human capital, which really will make us competitive in the 21st century. Um, so I'm not sure public attitudes are a particularly good metric of that because they flip very fast when people seem frightened. And right now, because the terrorism going on in the United States is on the part of a, a nationalist and neo-Nazi right, there's a lot of focus on domestic security in addition to the very good issues that you mentioned. But that moves very fast. What besides public attitudes um, do you rely on for crafting a defense policy? What do you think the elements are that would keep the United States safe and allow us to focus on those other investments? Well, I think first we ought not to be getting into wars that we don't need to. I think the Iraq war was a colossal blunder that uh, has made us uh, much less safe. I think the engagement in Afghanistan for uh, 16 plus years uh, after the initial uh, strike on Taliban, which I thought was justified, uh, has been an, a, a blunder that has uh, hurt American national security. We ought to obviously maintain a strong uh, uh, military uh, and we ought to protect the freedom of the seas, but we can do that without having uh, troops stationed all over the world and without getting into to wars of, uh, which we don't need to. Uh, consider the, the Strait of Hormuz in, in Iran. I mean, most of that oil that is uh, that goes through the Strait benefits China and Asia. It doesn't. It, the United States doesn't rely on it, and yet we're bearing the entire costs of, uh, of protecting that. And so, I think that uh, most Americans don't want America to be the world's policeman, and they want a strong military and 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 clear that if we were ever attacked, we would respond with overwhelming force and that no one should underestimate America's military might. Uh, but we should not be, we should be more focused on creating jobs here at home than uh, 
sending our troops overseas to, to fight wars that aren't in our national interest. And here I actually think you see an alliance, a, a coalition between the progressive left and people in the Freedom Caucus who uh, have rejected a lot of the failed foreign policy over the last uh, 20 years, which is why, you know, my view is, uh, even though I think Vice President Biden is going to win and I'm totally supportive of him, I think he's going to win in spite of Negroponte's endorsement, not because of it. I mean, these, these national security uh, people who blundered for the last 20 years are not uh, enhancing his credibility. And I think it's totally dismissed by the American public who believe that we've had a lot of failed foreign policy over the last 20 years. Ed, do you want to pick up on this theme or change change course a bit? Yeah, I just just one um, sort of delving further in, in in that in that regard is is the left's view of China. Um, you know, this has become quite a bipartisan consensus in the last um, few years that 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 even Trump might be right that China is a strategic threat. Um, and uh, that if anything survives Trumpism, it's going to be that bipartisan view of China as more than just a strategic competitor, but as a potential threat. Do you agree with that? And, and if so, what, what, what would that imply for American foreign policy and defense policy? I would say that they're a strategic competitor, but I would say that they, there has to be a two-track approach to China. Uh, first, an approach that uh, recognizes human rights. I mean, obviously, they've been uh, awful with the, the Uyghurs. They've been awful in suppressing uh, human rights and freedoms in their in their own society, uh, and and makes it clear that America will not allow for uh, the theft of intellectual property or just uh, condone uh, huge human rights abuses. Uh, but then, second, also having a parallel track. Uh, in terms of cooperation on issues of climate change and uh, pandemics. I think most people uh, on the Democratic side believe that there does have to be some cooperation with nations like China, even though we may disagree to solve uh, humanity's problems. And then I would argue that the biggest way to stay ahead of China and to make sure that liberal democracy is the model of the, for the world uh, is to make sure that we're not uh, being... Uh, out-invested. I mean, they're investing huge amounts in synthetic biology, understanding that uh, we're going to have a transformational moment where uh, you can change basically how products are made and material is made. They're investing huge amounts in artificial intelligence. Uh, we want uh, the, um, China to be more dependent on American technology than us to be dependent on their technology. And so I would focus on how are we competitive in leading the 21st century rather than a form of mercantilism uh, that really isn't going to hurt China or, or make us stronger. Let me pick up on that um, before we go back to, to Corey. Um, and, and it also picks up on your, your experience in, in, in the Commerce Department as well, and the fact that you represent part of Silicon Valley. Uh, it seems to me that one of the big problem areas in our dealing with China and, frankly, in dealing with trade generally going forward is going to have to do with the intersection between technology issues and security issues. Uh, and we've already seen this in the cases of, of, of Huawei and, you know, efforts to uh, push back on the role that Chinese companies like TikTok play in the United States. Um, but, you know, all new technologies, all technologies that connect to the Internet, many other kinds of technologies like artificial intelligence, have profound security 
consequences to them. And it seems to me that engaging in bilateral spats is not the solution here. And it may, in fact, uh, be damaging. Um, uh, similarly, you know, keeping out um, you know, Chinese people from getting the visas they need to study in the United States may have a negative effect. What's, what's your view on this intersection of technology, trade, and security? It's a thoughtful question. Well, I think the, uh, it is important that that technology be de developed in the United States uh, with our principles of uh, respect for privacy, respect for uh, the uh, in integrity of, of users. And I don't trust the, the Chinese systems, which by definition are uh, connected to the state and uh, have no uh, safeguards over, over data privacy. But I don't think it's enough to just say, well, we want to try to ban Huawei from the rest of the world. You know, when I was at the Munich Security Conference, someone stood up and asked uh, Speaker Pelosi or the Defense Secretary, uh, I think it was the former president of Estonia, and they said, uh, okay, you're telling us not to buy Huawei. What are you offering as an alternative? And I think that's the, the harder question for the United States to, to, to answer. Why are we not having a uh, industrial policy and a policy that's really uh, investing in cutting edge technology here so that we are a leader and we're not falling behind China. And to that extent, I think we want to have uh, Chinese students come to the United States, Chinese researchers come to the United States, and uh, that's to our comparative advantage, much like it was uh, post uh, the Cold War to, to be the most innovative country. I think that's what's going to lead uh, the 21st century. Corey? So I agree with those big, broad um, principles, but it's also really problematic that it's not clear to me, for example, Facebook respects users' privacy, that many of the American tech firms look almost as destructive to American democracy as Chinese firms are. How do you propose specifically that we should be regulating American technology firms to achieve good things and rein in the damage that they are actually doing? Well, Tim Berners-Lee and I have an Internet Bill of Rights that I think would go a long way. Tim Berners-Lee, of course, was uh, the founder in, in many ways of the Internet, and Speaker Pelosi asked us to do that. And, uh, in the beginning of it is... Uh, a sense that people should have to consent affirmatively uh, before their data is, is collected. Another aspect should be that these algorithms should be uh, disclosed and there should be some uh, stakeholder uh, design. So, uh, you know, Facebook can say that the principles of free speech, even though they're a private actor, they can say, well, look, Mark Zuckerberg shouldn't be determining whether to take down a post from uh, Ro Khanna or Donald Trump, that's not his business. Fine, but there's certainly no obligation for Mark Zuckerberg to be recommending uh, the posts that I put up or Donald Trump puts, puts up. And what Facebook has done by having some of these addictive algorithms is not just uh, hiding behind free speech and saying we're not going to take something down. They're actually recommending uh, posts that are false or posts that are encouraging people uh, to join uh, extremist groups. And I don't think uh, Section 230 protection ought to uh, apply uh, to a platform that is 
affirmatively recommending content uh, as opposed to applying to uh, protecting a, a platform uh, from liability uh, for speech, where we, we would want to have some protection for speech. All of that said, I think they're infinitely better than China. I mean, there's no comparison. I mean, China is a, Absolutely. a, a, a horrific uh, uh, example of corruption. And, you know, I mean, they have Baidu as corruption, basically, in uh, ordering its search results. So, uh, you know, I think uh, American democracy, for all our problems, is still an infinitely better, morally superior system than China's. I heartily agree with that. And I think your concrete suggestions for regulation are really important ones um, because you're right that um, private companies are adjudicating speech, but only because we have left that space unregulated and um, even for American companies. And so finding a balance that respects our values but also allows these exciting new technologies to be innovations in a positive sense is really important. So I commend you for, for thinking seriously in a practical way about how we can um, use the technologies positively, not leave the, uh, the leadership of these companies as adjudicators of, what, of our rights but that requires responsible governance and regulation that we need to bring to bear on it. So I really commend your efforts in that regard. No, I appreciate that, and I agree with uh, the approach you, you lay out, and I think that that's going to be uh, the fine line. And American jurisprudence is actually very, very strong. I mean, of course, the Brandenburg case, uh, which allows free speech, does not allow speech that incites uh, uh, imminent unlawful conduct. And our First Amendment jurisprudence in this country is very nuanced. We don't just have a absolute protection of speech. And I think that the uh, a, a regulatory framework uh, drawing from those traditions uh, could go a long way. David, before you go on, can I add a non sequitur that I just stumbled across something genuinely wonderful relevant to this notion of free speech not including shouting fire in a crowded theater? Abby Hoffman's declaration that the Yippie movement was about shouting theater in a crowded fire is something I just discovered and feels really wonderful in this moment. It, yeah, no, that it certainly does. Uh, you know, Ed, you're going to have to help me here because listening to this conversation and listening to the congressman and, and each of you talk, I'm hallucinating. I'm losing my moorings here. I feel like um, I, I, I've, I've transported uh, to the year 2021 and Donald Trump isn't president. We can actually talk about substantive issues without having the president suggest we inject Clorox into our veins, you know, bring me back to earth here. I, I, you know, this, this is, you know, this is, is, is too comfortable and thoughtful for me. Um, well, I'm not sure whether this would count as bringing you back to earth, um, but picking up on, on um, theaters in a crowded fire or vice versa. Um, I, I do, I do want to hear from you representative about, the, uh, the fires in California. And, and, you know, we have this saying that California is the future of America. And in so many respects it is. Um, I, 
suspect it's also true in terms of the impact of, of climate change as Oregon and Washington State and others are finding out. Um, could you talk a little bit about, as a Californian um, in district representing Northern California, how rapidly this adva- has advanced in the last few years and whether you think this is a moment that could be converted into, given this is an election year, into something broader and more practical in terms of federal politics um, uh, uh, after November, in terms of action on climate change. I do. I mean, it's, it's really affected the entire state. And uh, as we were discussing uh, before the, the podcast started, in my district, even though there hasn't been uh, extraordinary property damage, unfortunately, no loss of life, you still had weeks of uh, 105 degree temperature with smoke outside, people inhaling uh, very unhealthy uh, smoke, power outages. Uh, and so it is something that has affected uh, 32 million people almost in California and everyone has, uh, has suffered the consequences. And we know it's just factual. We know it's because of uh, the hotter weathers and, and the uh, drier conditions. So uh, climate change has uh, already started exacting huge costs on people's quality of life to the point that one has to a- ask how uh, inhabitable uh, will certain parts of the state be 20 years from now if nothing uh, is done? Now, climate change isn't the only uh, issue. There are other things we could have uh, done, not uh, Donald Trump's uh, uh, inane suggestion to rake forests, but there is uh, Stanford studies about having prescribed burns. I mean, the Native Americans used to have an understanding of the ecology and let uh, uh, fires burn in certain places. And the federal government incl- uh, uh, oversees 50% of California's uh, uh, wild, uh, uh, the, the, the forest lands, uh, but they haven't done prescribed burns. Uh, we could have better technology to understand when these fires are starting. So there are steps uh, short of uh, a global solution to climate change that could mitigate some of the damage. Um, and the part of the reason I asked you that is what David asked me, I think, you know, is partly bound up in how people see what's happening in your state with these fires. Um, Lots of people are viewing these fires as the consequence of global warming and the greater lightning strikes, storms moving north, droughts, the usual um, sort of explanations, the scientific ones. There is a whole section of America that believes Antifa is involved in, in some of these um, fires, that, that um, you know, some of the stories around Portland, people refusing to move um, in the environs of Portland where there are fires putting them in danger because they believe that there, there are far-left people who are, who are out there to kill them and their communities need protecting. It takes more than just an election to deflate the QAnons of this world, right? I mean, we look at how the American political system works. It is a vetocracy. California, as a state, embodies that perhaps as much as any other state, but federally, it is a vetocracy. If you've got 40% of the country that believes beyond nutjob things, um, how are you going to get to action on things like global warming and all the other things you've mentioned? Well, I would uh, respectfully push back on the idea that 40% believe in sort of conspiracy theories. I, I, I may put that number at 10, 15% uh, in terms of where uh, the American public is. And there have always been in uh, democracies uh, parts of uh, conspiracy theories and uh, things that turn out to be scientifically 
untrue, but they're overcome in, in robust democracies. Now, obviously, the spread of that is uh, faster with social media, uh, and you can customize them, and you can be, be louder. Uh, but I think that there's a broader challenge, uh, which is that uh, uh, too often uh, progressives are fond of saying, well, just listen to the scientists. Let, let's just have the, the scientists in, in charge. And uh, what we really need is uh, more scientific uh, uh, understanding and expertise. But to me, that is not the, the hard part of uh, a democracy. The, the hard part of the do- a democracy is to connect uh, science to uh, people's lived experience. And if in our, in, in our country, uh, the uh, lived experience of many people has been that the expertise of the governing class has led to uh, deindustrialization uh, and small towns being hollowed out and their uh, middle class life uh, slipping away, uh, then they're uh, going to be skeptical uh, of expertise or being told what to do. And it is for our job, for political leaders, to connect uh, science in a way that resonates uh, with people's lived experience. So you see this, for example, with Matt Russell uh, in Iowa, who's brought farmers into the conversation on climate change and uh, has now gotten the buy-in from many farmers there about regenerative agriculture and how that would be profitable for them and how they're actually stewards of the land. Uh, And I think uh, we have to learn, uh, instead of uh, having an attitude of lecturing the public, thinking that uh, the scientists are smarter than the public, uh, to be more mindful of sort of political philosophy of saying that the public can be brought along if their uh, values are respected and they have agency in the conversation. Corey, you have a, a closer stake to this uh, conversation than, than any of us except the congressman because this is where you're from. Um, do you have a follow-up or a perspective? Well, I want to celebrate Congressman Khanna's answer to Ed's challenge, which is that there's no substitute for winning the political debate and that we need to remain moored to the notion that um, democracies can't function unless we can compromise and unless we can be respectful and of each other's views and willing to do roll our sleeves up and try and change people's minds. Um, so that is another subject, as you know, David, near and dear to my heart as I try and talk to my fellow Republicans about why they should vote for Vice President Biden in this presidential election. Um, and I do find the same thing that the congressman mentions, which is that, um, you know, respectfully trying to meet people where they are um, gets you a lot of the benefit of the doubt uh, for, for trying to get issues that you care about taken up by people who feel deeply and profoundly differently about it. So I really admire the congressman's commitment to that. I think that's our way forward. On the wildfires, yeah, so Congressman Khan, I'm from Sonoma, California. And I was home for four or five months of the pandemic lockdown there. And the heat and the smoke and the anxiety people are feeling because this added on everything else uh, really does make the case for um, that, that Californians have long tried to make that climate is an essential political issue 
and we've already wasted more time than we should, um, that, that finding a way to move it more to the center of our political agenda, I think there you also have a right-left potential axis of cooperation. I mean, environmentalist conservatives can be brought along to that place, I think and to making it a government priority. But I wonder if that's your experience because you're so directly involved in this. I do think so. And I think uh, you, you can uh, find a way of talking about things about uh, through conservation and uh, how that is not something uh, that is liberal or conservative. Many people care about the land. People care about having clean water. People care about uh, being good stewards of, of, of the planet. Um, I think that the challenge, what I think people find actually counterproductive, and uh, my own view, I'm not speaking in any way for the progressive movement or the Democratic Party, is when uh, Democrats say, well, they just don't uh, believe in science. Uh, the, and I, I think it's more complicated than that. I think uh, I believe that climate change is a huge existential priority and that we, you know, I'm a signer of the Green New Deal. But I don't think that the people who are opposed to this are just uh, intrinsically rejecting science. I think that there are competing values about economics, uh, competing values about what uh, people are prioritizing, competing assessments about risk, uh, competing uh, judgments about the success of mitigation. And uh, ha allowing for a conversation of, that uh, it takes seriously competing values and then affirmatively makes the case that we need to do more uh, and, and states clearly our values I think has a better chance of success than uh, a condescending uh, suggestion that some people are smarter than other people. Well, that's a constructive view. I think we have time for one more round here. Ed, do you have another question? Uh, well, we pick up on a piece David wrote, which I tweeted out, and uh, in the Daily Beast, I think David um, that came out today or yesterday that in which you in turn picked up on a Nick Kristoff piece that showed that the United States had dropped um, from 19th to 28th place on uh, the social progress index, an international sort of measure of, across the board of both economic and human development um, indicators. Um, notably, the things that leapt out at me were access to basic education. I think America came 95th and access to basic health care came 97th, but access to quality um, on both of those, it came first. So it, uh, really a perfect expression of... Um, access to what it came first? Um, access to quality health care and, and, and higher education. Got it. Came, um, not access to, sorry, quality of um, high-end health care and, and, and universities, it came first. So first and first and in the 90s, respectively. Um, you couldn't really think of a better. And David um, cited that um, in, in his piece, that study, um, but also talked, I think, about something I, I assume you agree with, um, which is that the structural problem with American governance and American politics is considerably deeper um, than simply getting rid of Trump, um, that there are. Um, capabilities there that America should have that it no longer does have. Um, and I'll give you one anecdotal example. My wife, who's Irish, had to very briefly, um, because of a dying relative, go to Ireland um, last week. 
she went via Frankfurt, had a five-hour stopover. In that five hours, got a test, got a result. We still don't have that capability in the United States um, in September of 2020 um, to, to, to get uh, something that in Germany has been routinely available and in many other countries for months. Um, so I, I guess sort of teeing off David's article, I wanted to ask, to what extent do you, do you think, would you share David's view, and I think I agree with David, that this is, this is a profoundly fragile system in the United States, and, and we're, we're not necessarily um, in the public debate um, capturing just, just how deeply problematic um, the American system of governance and politics is. Well, what I would say is that what America is trying to do is um, exceedingly difficult. In the history of the world, there has never truly been a, uh, a multiracial, multiethnic uh, democracy. I often joke somewhat sarcastically. I said when Europe elects uh, someone like Barack Obama to lead one of their nations, then I'll listen to any of their moral lectures. But uh, until France has uh, uh, someone like that as president or Britain has someone like that as prime minister, uh, there's still a lot to recommend American democracy. And of course, uh, we're all products of our own experience. But, uh, you know, my experience as a grandson of uh, uh, an Indian freedom fighter who spent four years in jail uh, with Gandhi, born in 1976 in Philadelphia, our bicentenary, grew up in a middle-class family in a 99% white suburb and had uh, teachers who believed in me, had little league coaches who believed in me, and at the age of 40 was uh, given the privilege to represent arguably the most powerful economic district in the world in Silicon Valley. Uh, that story is probably not possible in many other uh, nations. Now, I had a great public education. I had uh, the ability to have uh, a safe neighborhood. My father had health care. So the question then becomes uh, two things. One, how do we provide uh, every American uh, with the opportunities that this country provided me? I don't think it's asking too much to have the basic investments in uh, a person's capabilities that give them the freedom uh, to, to be able to dream for, for a middle-class life. And I think that is one of our projects. But I think what is a deeper and more challenging project is how do we have uh, a sense of common uh, American purpose and a common American political vocabulary uh, that binds us. And you see this is where the, the parties are so different that Trump talks about really the preservation, preservation of an American way of life uh, and the articulation of a vision that uh, draws on our founding, that draws on great leaders, people like Frederick Douglass, who wrote about, multi, you know, in a great uh, oration, talked about what a multiracial, multiethnic democracy would look like and gets the buy-in of people where, where we feel that we have not just rights as uh, children of immigrants or immigrants, but also obligations to a common American story. I think that's a very difficult question. And I think a lot of our polarization is because of those challenges. I often tell people you could replace the entire Congress tomorrow and we'd be just as polarized. If you, it's, it's not that the Congress is polarized, it's that the constituencies are polarized. Uh, but I think that uh, we will eventually find uh, a common vocabulary. The most, uh, Obama came the closest in my lifetime, I think, to doing that. And I have no doubt that America will produce uh, great leaders capable of doing that going forward. I would just, final point is, 
the same nation that elected Donald Trump two years later elected AOC the squad in the most diverse Congress in the history of this country. So you have very different trends in this country that I think over the long run uh, will allow us to emerge as the first truly multiracial, multiethnic democracy in the history of the world. And you might have idea a very, very quick pushback on that. I mean, I was um, 11 when Britain got a female leader. So it's, it's had two female prime ministers. America still hasn't had a female leader. Um, your response, which I understand and expresses your life story very, very well, and many people's, but yours, your ultimate conclusion only in America, I just don't think it's correct. And I think this is part of the American problem, that your defense mechanisms, whatever it might be, that this is European moralizing or old world, is, is, is blinding you to just how comparatively bad the United States is at the moment. What you express is what it should be, and I fully agree with that. But it isn't that anymore. It really isn't. Well, I, I, I disagree. I mean, I mean, do I think that, obviously, I disagree with the, Trump's handling of the, the coronavirus pandemic. And if you were to ask me, do I think that the United States has been uh, positive or negative as it compares to other countries and how we've handled this crisis, I would say negative. I mean, anyone looking at the data can't say otherwise. And I don't th- I think Trump will be regarded as uh, one of our uh, really bad presidents historically. Uh, but do I think that that's an indictment uh, more broadly of uh, a- a American democracy? I don't, because just uh, four years earlier, we produced uh, Barack Obama. Now, if we have a succession of Donald Trumps for the next 15 years or something, then you would be correct. We might not be having this debate. <laughs> Corey, I want to go straight to you for the last question. Congressman, you know, Corey is known here as the permanent holder of the tiara of optimism. So she may, she may, she may offer a view. Well, I wonder if little... she disagrees or agrees with me. <laughs> well, she ardently um, we'll agrees with you, although... Um, I think my sense of uh, the American story is the constant struggle to improve. So um, I don't object at all to Ed's dour um, conclusion. <laughs> I just think it spurs us on to be better than we are because um, we can, can and should always strive to be better than we are. I wonder, Congressman, which of... The many issues motivating politics in the U.S. right now, um, you are most worried about. Like if, if, it, if you had to focus your attention on just one problem we face, and that was the only thing you could fix, what would loom largest in your concerns for our country? I would say ge- geographic uh, inequality, that uh, the uh, globalization and the technology revolution have benefited uh, certain areas extraordinarily, but have left out uh, rural America, have left out minority communities, uh, that has led to uh, a sense of uh, disconnect from uh, the broader uh, country. And I think that that's driving not all of the uh, negativity uh, but a lot of the, the resentment. I mean, you've had so many towns across this country where jobs have left, where they talk about a brain drain, uh, kids who have to leave those communities just to uh, have a shot at, at the middle class. Imagine if manufacturing in America were concentrated in four or five cities. You never would have had a broad middle class. 
and you've had the racial wealth gap increase while we've had the technology revolution. You're not seeing uh, IPOs have that many uh, African-American or uh, Latino uh, founders. So how do we broaden access to the modern economy? How do we provide uh, communities left out with some possibility and stake in the modern economy? I think if we do that, uh, we take a, a, a meaningful step to uh, uh, stitching this country uh, back together, which is why I believe as harmful and painful as Trump's uh, 16 election was, it was a cry for help from a lot of people who said that this country had forgotten them and had been left behind. And part of our challenge is instead of just attacking Trump, though I uh, share uh, almost 99% of the critique, is to acknowledge uh, in uh, the sentiment of the people who uh, 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 voted uh, for him and to say, we will do better. We hear your message and we understand that uh, the governing class let you down in many ways and uh, we have an obligation to fix that. I, I, I have to say, I'm very sympathetic to that comment. And in fact, in the piece that I wrote and, and, and I've written many, many pieces like this uh, to which Ed referred, um, what, you know, one of those concerns that I have is that, uh, that we, you know, we're the one of only three countries that have fallen behind in that, uh, that metric of social progress of all the countries in the world. And we fell the most. Uh, and my concern is that for 40 years, both political parties have contributed to the divide you're talking about. Now, we can have a debate about, you know, whether Republicans contributed more than Democrats. If inequality has grown the way it has in the United States, um, uh, and it's both, you know, economic inequality, but there are also geographic elements, racial elements to it, and the government can't fix it, and the government's not doing its job. And uh, I find it extremely encouraging to, to hear you argue these cases thoughtfully. Uh, I encourage uh, our listeners to follow you because you are arguing these cases thoughtfully. Um, and I hope we can have you back to talk about these things in greater length um, uh, because who knows? It's possible that come January, we may shift our national discussion from, oh my God, what has Donald Trump done today, to how do we fix this stuff? That'd be great. Um, and I'll look at your article. I didn't know that uh, statistic about uh, uh, falling behind uh, on those social indexes. So that's in the Daily Beast that you wrote that piece? The article is, yeah. But, but Ed, correctly in referring to my article, referred to it by referring to Nick Kristof's even better article in the New York Times, uh, which focuses on that. Um, and uh, really, you can't have a better treatment of an article than, than I got from Ed, because my points were better stated by Ed and substantiated by Nick Kristoff, and that just elevated them all enormously. Um, in any event, thank you very much, Congressman. Thank you, Corey. Thank you, Ed. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We've got a lot of interesting things coming up in the next couple of weeks, new things and different ones. So go to the dsrnetwork.com to see what we've got. And if you want to support the work that we're doing, sign up to be a member there. Um, but in the meantime, um, I encourage you to uh, continue diving into conversations like the one we had here, because this is the kind of substantive uh, uh, discussion that, that I think we're going to need to move to real quickly. Uh, thanks, everybody, and stay safe.